0: Hi guys, welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. I'm your host, David Breer, and today I'm joined by Steve Barlett, who is the CEO of Social Chain. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today, but Steve, how's it going? Nice. Uh, great to be here. Really great to be here. And a uh, big fan of the podcast, so yeah, thanks for having me on. No worries. Um, we'll, we'll get into a little bit more about Social Chain in a little while, but mm-hmm. tell me a little bit more about your background. Other than sort of working nocturnally and uh, like suffering from jet lag right now, then uh, what what uh, what got you to here? Um, so
1: I think, I think I am a, naturally a bit of a, what's the word? Bit of like a rebel when it comes to rules and systems and the way things have been done in conventions. So I think I was expelled from school when I was, uh, a. They tried to expel me at 16, but they told me I was making the school so much money, so they delayed it until I was
0: 17. We're going to have to pick into that. Sure. What did you
1: do, and how were you making the school money? I'd I'd done all the deals for all of our vending machines in the school, but I was also running all the school trips and um, all of the school's events for sixth formers, so I was controlling the flow of money. Right. And so Mr. Thomas gave me the expulsion form when I was 16, and then the person, the Guy above him called Mr. Sprinkle ripped it up and, uh, and said, we're not going to expel you. You make the school too much. You're my little Harry Potter. You make the t- school too much money. Um, and then they eventually expelled me in the last week of school. But <laughs> it was an attendance issue I had. My attitude's always been fine. I, I'm not the type to swear at teachers and throw chairs. It's just getting there and going to classes and doing homework was just too much of a challenge for me.
0: That's that's interesting. So that sort of uh, pr- the process of learning in that way—it's not really the thing for everybody, right? I've I've a bunch of friends who just don't learn in that yeah, function.
1: I fucking hate it.
0: <laughs> I can't um, I can't sit in a
1: room and listen to theoretical th- like stuff for an hour. I will I will sleep like protest sleep. My body shuts down. It's, I can't help that. And um, the same happened, so I went off to university at 18 and thought, you know, this is gonna be different. I get to do one topic, which I love, which is business, went to the lecture, sat at the back, fell asleep, walked out of lecture, dropped out of uni. Wow. And that was the only experience I had of university when I, that sleeping in that lecture and then going and dropping out immediately. And I, I decided, cause I looked around the lecture room and I realized that all of these people, none of them really wanted to be here. I went to not the best university, I won't say which one, cause, People might be offended, man met. But um <laughs> I, I looked over and this girl was pissed next to me and she had her head on the table and I thought this is just like this is just like school again. This guy's talking, making analogies with a box and love. I'm pretty sure I'm in the wrong room. So that was my last day at uni. Yeah.
0: Well. So mm. maybe roll back slightly because I'm sure. fascinated by the um, the the vending machine part of this. Like, t- tell us that story because that sounds like quite an interesting way to uh, sort of get into your psyche a little bit.
1: Yeah. Like, so I was sat in the common room in our school, and the head people, um, like the head girl, the head boy, it was their job to pick vending machines from these catalogs. And I was I remember it so vividly. They were sat in front of me Carly Stokes and she was going through this catalog looking at vending machines and they cost like 3000 pounds. And I'm thinking why would we pay for vending machines when we have 2000 customers students in the school? Surely the vending machine company should be paying us or we should be making money from these people or something. So I went to the computer room at period 2, which is break time, and I just I sent 5 emails to the first 5 companies that came up on Google in Plymouth. Um, by period four, they pulled me out of my lesson and said, someone's here to see you. No, I didn't check. I did not check my email yet. And it was a a guy just so happened that one of my emails went to a guy who used to go to our school, who's now the CEO of the biggest vending machine company in the area. And he was looking to pay the school back. Mm. So they ended up fitting vending machines and, um, our school, uh, school got 20%, got the machines for free Mm -hmm. and 20% of all the revenue from the machines,
0: um,
1: that's so it was good, it's good deal.
0: Bit of, yeah, bit a bit of a deal to sort of start that going then. So uh, yeah. I feel like we're kind of getting through a bunch of personal vendettas here for you at high school, which is good fun. So is there anybody at university you want to call out now as well? I like just, I wasn't you never there know, they might there might be a banker right now, we can get them. Do you know yeah. what?
1: I just wasn't there long enough. <laughs> and it's a it's a weird thing with my school and with university because they've both asked me to come back and be ambassadors and yeah. speak. And I was like, I was at uni you know, and met for a day, and they've asked me to speak like as some alumni. And then I, 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 my school kicked me out and I've been back twice to speak to the students for GCSEs and A-level print, like award days. I don't know, it's all a bit
0: fraudulent. <laughs> well, it's, but it's interesting though, isn't it? Because again, it's different people learn in so dramatically different ways. And actually, mm. if you didn't have that experience in that classroom where you were like, this is mm. not for me and I need this other route, then actually, mm. I guess you wouldn't be the CEO of the company that you are today. So mm. it's like, like, how did you get from there to here? Because you've gone from, do you know what, fuck it, I'm out of university, I'm going to go and do my own thing. Mm. How have you got to being the CEO of, of your company? See, this is the
1: thing. Mm. I, often people think if you're bad in school, that means you're lazy. And it just couldn't be further from the truth. I was, you know, everybody's lazy when it comes to doing shit you hate. Mm. Um, but when it comes to doing things you love and uh, doing things in the way that engages your sets your soul or whatever alike, um, very few people are lazy. So I, whenever, when it it came to business in my school and starting businesses and running the school trips and organizing school trips to Thought Park and doing all the consent forms and collecting all the money and all those things, I would, I would do it till 4am in the morning. I just didn't want to push the plastic baby around school for health and social care class (laughs) and change a (laughs) snappy. And I didn't like listening to, like, I wasn't that interested in, like, you know, things like maths. I know it's important, but I wasn't interested. So um, when it when I dropped out, I spent the next, you know, 12 months aggressively pursuing my business ideas, and I would work harder than anybody on earth, and I still do today, because I love it. You know, I love business, and I love building things. Mm-hmm. And so although everybody wrote me off because the characteristics or the behavior that I demonstrated is usually conducive with failures and, I don't know, people that become drug dealers or whatever... Um, I was just misunderstood, and I think a lot of people are. And um, so, at the moment, I'm, I'm on a bit of a, a mission to to to
0: to correct the education system. I think. Okay. And and how are you sort of looking at that? Because that that sounds like uh like we we there's probably about four hours we can talk about that one. Yeah, so- I'm
1: gonna keep it super brief, and I've got to keep it slightly cryptic. I'm and my brand manager's in the corner, and she might kill me for saying this, but I'm All not right. gonna I'm not gonna ad- violate any an NDAs. But I'm currently doing a TV show with one of the number one channels in this country, which I've been shooting for 12 days straight. And it directly, and it'll be on nine o'clock prime time for one hour. And it directly highlights everything I've just described. The second thing is I started a foundation called Rewrite Foundation, where I go to disadvantaged schools and I speak to the kids. And my whole agenda there is to help rewrite the stories that institutions or your parents might have told you that stand to uh, prevent you from reaching your full potential. Okay. Because there's a, am scared of the fact that there's a huge chance I could have believed some of these stories. The story is that people that get A's are rich and happy. B's, meh, a little bit less. D's, meh, E's, you're fucked. Hmm. Like that's the untold story of school that comes from your parents and institutions and teachers. And I just don't want people to believe that story because if you believe it, you become it and that's the
0: real danger it's not the not the bad grade it's letting the bad grade get to you so completely and, and i i really believe in the thing that you're saying there because it's about finding the thing that you're passionate about and making the effort mm-hmm. um I, I have a similar story if i'm honest with you. i actually mm-hmm. didn't so I, I stuck in university but i found the thing that i was passionate about mm-hmm. i didn't actually try until i got to university and actually finding that thing that you're really passionate about makes work not work mm-hmm. um and i think there's an element there of it's not just the receptacle as in the student but actually the teacher you know mm-hmm. if the teacher is teaching you incorrectly, you're never going to learn, right? hundred percent. So I think we found common ground, which is oh, good, amazing. which is nice. But um, so I, I think that probably brings us to about now as well. So tell me mm-hmm. more about social chain. What do you guys do? Yeah. So um, take, I'll take one step back just so
1: I can tee this up properly. But I dropped out at 18, did a business for three years, which was kind of like a social network. In trying to understand how to market that business mm-hmm. with no money, I was forced to do things in a very hacky way. And that's how Social Chain was born, through the desire. I, I have no money, but I need millions of people to come to a website. How do I do that? Social media, after lots of trial and error, became the answer. And building, we ended up building these enormous communities online to the point where we could get millions of people to download something in a day just by all of our channels talking about it at once. Mm. And... Um, When I was 21 years old, I dropped out. I quit that company. I'm very good at quitting. I quit my company out the blue, big glass of wine, emailed the investors, five of them, and some of them had built the biggest social networks in the world, like Friends United. Um, And I told them that I believed in social media more than I believed in what we were doing. Mm -hmm. Next year, I went around the world. Uh, Michael Birch, who made Bebo back in the day, and I think he went on to invest in Pinterest, invited me out to Silicon Valley with a guy called Sean to help bring Bebo back when I was 21. And in, that, in my 21st year, I was a consultant for nine companies at the same time all around the world. So we were just traveling for the whole year, to, living on couches and Airbnbs. And then one of my clients turned around and said, do you want to turn this thing you've been doing for us into a business? It was actually a startup in London that raised 20 million. Uh, we were sleeping on their sofa, helping the market. They gave us a check for 300 grand. Mm. Um, we took it to the bank. That was four years ago, almost to the day. Like. We took that check to the bank, and then we said, okay, let's start a company called Social Chain, which is exactly what we were doing for these clients mixed with this big reach we had in the social Mm -hmm. media pages. So Social Chain Group became a marketing agency, which is a completely separate business with different MDs and different offices, and Media Chain, the media owner, which owns hundreds of the world's largest social media channels across Mm -hmm. all platforms. Yeah. Uh, and that's the business that I run, marketing and media business. Wow! Yeah, busy boy.
0: Hence, hence yeah. the why you're tired and moving yeah, always around. And, tired. Yeah. Always tired.
1: tired, but always very happy.
0: Yeah. I'm optimistic so when you say social what do you mean because actually like the the hard thing i guess with social media and and uh, and really like what we've done with 11fs we mm-hmm. our only distribution channel is is through social we don't mm-hmm. do anything else other than that in terms of where we're at but when you say social to people people think various different things in terms of what they're doing and the difficulty is is everybody has a facebook page or a twitter page so everybody thinks they're an expert at social media right mm-hmm. um so what do you how do, what's your sort of thesis around social how do you think people do it better than others um
1: oh, great, good question I think social chain have succeeded because we never ever wanted to or intended to start a marketing agency mm. ever the story of how social chain came together is I was I was I had pages because I did Wallpark, and I was trying to figure out how to get free traffic to my website yep. I then went around the country in 2011 and met every young person I could that had built big social media pages in their bedroom 40 of them these are kids in their bedroom Nick was 18 years old at Loughborough, started tweeting. Fast forward six years, he's got 15 million followers and the page is called Sporf. Wow. Then Hannah Anderson, off to be a school teacher, starts off making content around the things she loves. Harry Potter builds the biggest Harry Potter page in the world. Nice. The, that story, Connor sat in his bedroom, loves food, makes a page called Love Food. It's got 10 million followers. Rounded up 40 people like that. We all came together and that authenticity, I think, Answer your question is what made social chain win. We are just a bunch of kids that were playing around with social media, hacking it, and brands came to us. We never ever made a business plan. Mm. The God's honest truth on my mother's life is Social Chain's business plan is written on the back of a napkin, and that napkin is photocopied. And it's it's in our official like company filings and in our shareholder documents. This photocopy of a napkin in um in in our in our old co-working space in London from four years ago. So it was never a plan and, and I think that speaks to
0: why it's worked and why peop- some people went on social media because of that authenticity. Yeah. Well, I, I guess it's it's sort of Back to that, you're doing something you love, right? Mm -hmm. So, But I guess in all of those cases, in terms of all of the people who are working with you now in Mm -hmm. in that space, then they're passionate about the content that Mm -hmm. they're delivering. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we found with this podcast, we started the podcast in the first place because actually we're in a situation where every other thing in fintech or financial services just bought the hell out of us, quite frankly. So you build something for you, and actually you're in a situation where you just find there's a lot of other people like you, which is awesome.
1: That's exactly the case. Um, all of our channels and all of our audiences have come from someone doing something that they just loved Mm -hmm. without the expectation of growing a big audience or Mm -hmm. making money.
0: And that was, that's, Second G. And and how how do you find the difference there between because there's a lot of big brands that are trying to get into to social? You know, yeah. you see really big organizations. We we've seen in financial services, we've seen big banks trying to get into social media, but mm-hmm. it's sort of it, it feels like that sort of dad at the disco a little bit. You know, there's yeah. that sort of jankiness to the to the moves in terms of what's going yeah. on and just not that authenticity. Mm-hmm. I guess how would you see some of these big organizations being able to do it with a authentic voice?
1: Yeah. So what you described there is what we might referred to as like cool dad syndrome mm. where you've got
0: um I'm a, I'm a dad so i'm like i'm in that cool dad territory now you see so or at least i like to believe i am
1: you're 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 a dad until you try and you, you try and be like the son, right. you know and try okay. and connect with the son's like culture and their terminology and those kinds of things that's the when you you get diagnosed with cool dad syndrome right. so um it's cool to just be a dad yeah. you know but like in the case of like financial services and banking if a bank starts saying like in their communications to its customers like yolo and uh, other sort of you know colloquial terms that young people might might use then then it's just not it violates this like this like level of like i guess trust and believability and all these things mm-hmm. and in an age we we live in the age of authenticity we live in an age where um s- skepticism and trust around Banks and CEOs and social media companies and everything is at an all-time low. Mm-hmm. So the people that are winning are the people that are just overly transparent. And there are great examples. I remember there's one CEO, I think he's the, the CEO of Everlane. Um, Everlane, I can't remember the name of the company, but he, he runs a fashion company. And when their suppliers' costs drop, so when they buy cashmere cheaper from their suppliers, Mm. he will write a letter on their social media channel saying, the price we pay for cashmere has dropped, so the right thing to do would be to make sure that the price drops for the customer. Mm -hmm. And that over-transparency is a thing that is building brand love in a world where we have no no trust for corporations and
0: stuff. And how, uh, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Because that transparency really shows the real inner workings of what you're doing. And, yeah. I, and I think, you know, we probably both are aware that ma- most big organizations are marketing on a, a vision of what they want to be rather than actually what they are. So, like, how do you manage that tension? How do you how do you create not just a persona, but reflect the reality of what, it, like, it means they have to actually do it, right? Yeah, do
1: you know, I, I've been through a similar thing in my own company where um, I realized that in order to make sure people stay close to us and our vision and our values and where we want to go with this company as we grow, I have to become more transparent. Mm. The, the one thing that stands to hurt us the most in terms of our, like, our team's engagement with our vision is if they don't feel connected to it. Yeah. And the... And the number one reason why they don't, they won't feel connected to it is because they're kind of left in the dark. Mm. And so, um, I, a couple of months ago, I started writing these emails, which are called full disclosure. And I send them every 14 days and I try and just send everything. Mm. Everything, the good, the bad, the things we're trying to improve on. And um, I think it does two things. It keeps people informed, but it sends a message to them that I, that we, we all, we're all in the same playing field here. Yeah. We all know everything. There's yeah. no secrets. And even if they don't read it, the fact that I sent it and it's called Full Disclosure uh, shows that I I,
0: I want to break down that separation, you know? Mm, yeah, tra- transparency and communication is definitely a, a, mm. a big thing there, isn't it? And like I say, most of the time in instances like that, like you say, it's, it's somebody feeling like they don't know something even if there's not something to know, right? Sure, exactly. Um, it, how are you seeing, I guess, the the sort of trend more and more away from, you know, social media is not now just a, you know, here's a thing, post a thing. Mm-hmm. It's moving much more to that engagement around the community. So, mm-hmm. you know, video is obviously much, much more of a thing than it was even sure. three or four years ago. And, you know, we've seen Instagram live and were Periscopes kind of making a bit of a resurgence in mm-hmm. terms of the, the numbers and the engagement. Uh, you know, video, it's hard to be an authentic. When your face and your mouth are there and everybody's got to like literally believe the thing you're saying Mm -hmm. rather than it just being an email that your PR person can write, Mm -hmm. you know, is this a dynamic or a skill set that you think big organizations are really kind of equipped to fight? with with in terms of video in particular yeah i think video the transparency around video is is a hard one because it it, it just breaks that barrier bullshit barrier down straight away because mm-hmm. there's no nobody's moving your mouth for you when sure. it's it whereas actually if yeah. it's a, a pr release then actually you know such and such ceo sure. has probably never seen that thing before sure. right no yeah i completely
1: agree i completely agree in fact that's um, a really good suggestion a few people have said to me that they want that They think I should record the full disclosure email and post it into our internal like company group. Sure. So and I completely get why, because you get to see the, 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 like, facial expression, and there's the story, therefore, and the the emotion of it all becomes uh, deeper,
0: so. Well, anytime I ever try and sit down and write anything, I can't do it. Like, my, my thing, uh, I can, I'm I'm okay at speaking, but writing, and, and uh, if I have to read a bunch of content, it takes me forever. If I have to write a bunch of things, my spelling and grammar is the worst thing in the whole world. But actually, just talking, I can just do that, and I will probably not even remember what I've said. Yeah. Um, but it just comes, and I think that authenticity comes through, because actually Actually, you're you're speaking from the heart. Type yeah, type, you you're unscripted right? in the name. Yeah, uh, yeah, but and I think the thing is, for for what we do in financial services, actually, you know, a, a real you know, big CEO will be so constrained by actually what they can and can't say that the thing that they probably want to say is not the thing that they know that they can say because the shareholders are going to, you know, mm-hmm. light the uh, the torches and be uh, sort of have their pitchforks outside the organisation pretty quickly. But exactly. Yeah. So where do you see sort of social going? Obviously, this is a, a, a space that you're at the uh, the sort of epicentre of in terms of things that are happening. But mm-hmm. how do you see this kind of progressing?
1: Interesting. Um a lot of it, when I think about predictions for social media, I always think about the hardware and sort of technological advancements that enable new things. So I just I think all of the, the developments of social media have predominantly been linked to some kind of tech, uh, technological advancement. So even stories, this is just, this is just a status update. Ten years ago we used to write status updates and and read status updates because 4g internet wasn't that good so i couldn't record a video and download a video to see my friends status updates um and now i can so stories was came at the moment when mobile internet and in the palm of our hands got so good um and now facebook stole that and put it everywhere so when i when i try and think about what the future looks like i just try and understand and i think the same for podcasting mm. i think the reason why um uh, like let's call it like digital audio um murdered radio, and is murdering radio in my opinion, um, is again because of how good our internet is in the palm of our hand and we can download hour-long audio files on the go. Um, And also because it's kind of been democratized with all these social platforms and podcasting and Spotify and SoundCloud. But so when I think about the future, I just try and understand how tech's changing. And I think one of the big bets I have for the next, I'd say five to 10 years is on wearable AR, I think that's going to cause the next major shift. I think we had a move from desktop to mobile phone. And then we ha- we went from mobile phones to smartphones, right? So we went from like, let's say, old massive computers to Windows and Macs. And then we went from the Nokias and the Blackberries to the iPhones and the Samsungs. And Apple and Google now are like running the show there. And I think the next thing in the S-curve is wearable AR mm. and it's just about just about getting real great practical applications that will make us all will make Jenny 14 year old Jenny in her bedroom need it mm. um and making it accessible cheap and um not not so intrusive yeah. uh, and I think I think that'll cause the next revolution and with mm. wearable AR you've got a whole new world
0: of social networking yeah. Um, So I think that's what I'm waiting for. It's um, amazing that world is not a million miles away, is it? It's not a million miles away, no. And the the impact from a humanity perspective could be so fascinating, I think, as well. Because, you know, the facts that I would have needed to know... 25 35 years ago that mm-hmm. are just at the fingertips of you now the fact that we have Google right mm-hmm. you know the exactly. the arguments that are, are kind of uh, dissipated in 50 seconds because you <laughs> yeah. Google who that guy was yeah. in the movie right <laughs> um, so but being in that situation where that can be for you know real practical things just mm-hmm. walking around everyday life to mm-hmm. understand where things are or what that is or mm-hmm. to you know with augmented reality the the voice translation things that mm-hmm. are happening like it kind of wouldn't matter if I was French and you were English and mm-hmm. actually we were having this conversation in three four you know, maybe less year's time. Exactly. I actually
1: spoke to a friend of mine, a guy called Benedict Evans, who I uh, follow on Twitter, and he works uh, in Silicon Valley and writes a lot about these things. And I actually tweeted him, I think it was on Friday, saying, how long do you reckon until we've got contact lenses that will deliver um, enough sort of functionality to, to be like social networking AR contact lenses? And he thinks it'll be about 10 years. Wow that so that we you know you could literally put a contact lens in. you could navigate your whole life, Facebook, your social apps, your friends text, people call mm. audio, all these things from a contact lens and i am inclined to believe it with a lot of other things i've not really bought into it with mm. even with like virtual reality and a lot of these predictions i've never really bought into it but um that sounds like a
0: pretty terrifying black mirror episode i think i've seen it at some does, point but yeah, that, like no, it, that that yeah. can go pretty wrong pretty badly based on that episode i mean even like look at mobile phones a lot of things went wrong with that and
1: computers a lot of things went wrong with that and there's always going to be like bad actors and you know the, we just got to hope that the the good actors are stronger and better um yeah but i to answer your question i think all of the when we think about predicting social media and where it's going in the future, it will be based on the fact that wearable AR will disrupt the mobile phone. Mm-hmm. We have completely plateaued in terms of innovation for the smartphone. I don't care, Samsung, if you're gonna make it foldable. Like save spare me. Oh, you're gonna make it thinner. Oh fuck. Do you know what I mean? The the the, the curve from the first Nokia brick phone to where we are now is huge. Mm-hmm. But in the last three, five and I mean you've only got to look at Apple's revenue figures recently for, for iPhones. We, we've plateaued with innovation in the mobile space so yeah
0: yeah that cycle's definitely getting longer and there's no real massive upgrade reason mm-hmm. isn't there so mm-hmm. it's slightly bigger it's slightly smaller it's not that helpful is it i'm sat here like a hypocrite with my brand new iphone <laughs> <right. laughs> <laughs> Wow, well, yeah, yeah. sometimes a shiny aluminium yeah. thing Still is good gets but... me when that johnny ives
1: comes on and starts talking like a artist but I- indeed I wonder if a robot will be driving us to work in the future?
0: They say robots could become more intelligent than humans. Which can only be a good thing, right?
1: Stephen Hawking said the rise of robots could be disastrous for mankind.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to robots doing the hard parts of my job.
1: If they're smarter than you, they might kick you out of your job. Artificial Intelligence. Innovation or Invasion. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times visit ft.com
0: forward slash subscribe today.
1: Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.Cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Um,
0: So, I guess... Seven years—that sounds like uh, you've folded maybe you know forty, fifty years of experience into seven years in terms of what you've been doing. Which is, I, I guess, uh, you know, accelerated learning is always good. But yeah. what would you go back and tell yourself at the beginning of this journey that you've learned, or you know, has the journey been the uh, the, the sort of benefit really? The thing that always pops into my mind instantly
1: when I, when I'm asked uh, questions on in of that type is just about the importance of people. I think once upon a time when I was 18, I thought that I would progress fastest in my career because I learned a bunch of stuff Mm -hmm. and I built a bunch of experience. And really the thing that took me from uh, there being two of us uh, when we were 21 to 270 full-time members of the team across five offices now, isn't really anything that I learned. It's a couple of people we hired that had a that knew a bunch of shit that I knew nothing about that um, took us from A to B. And I can literally, I, and this is why I'm so obsessed about, I re- refer to our company and all companies as really just recruitment businesses. Mm-hmm. Like, and I tried to, I said that to some of my senior directors at the start of this year. I was like, from now on, let's just think of ourselves as a recruitment business because there are six people in, so, in our company that I can say took us from social chain 1.0 to social chain 4.0, which yeah. is like from making... Uh, You know, a loss of not very much money to making over 30 million in in the last calendar year in revenue just for the media marketing business. The group will do about 200 million, but the media marketing business will do about 30 globally. And it's six, I could literally think it's six people. So I'm like, where's number fucking seven? (laughs) Like, that's what keeps me up at night, you know?
0: Um, It's amazing, though, like that as a uh, understanding the things that you're not good at. mm -hmm. Like admitting that, yeah, Christ, yeah. and then recruiting the people to like fill those gaps, like as and you say, them. Yeah, but that's that's what it is. You know, we we actually spent a bunch of time looking from an eleven fs perspective. We we looked at like what is our strategy? You know, it's like fintech and you know banky stuff. And actually, when you boil it down, exactly like you say, like our strategy right now is just about unleashing talent. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you get that right, then actually everything else is just try and get out of the way as much as possible, mm-hmm. right? Uh, especially as the CEO, you know, yeah. really, it's, uh, you know, you work for them rather than they work for you, right? hundred percent. And I think there's two, especially as a young CEO, you have, a,
1: you have, there's a couple of things which are unique to being a young CEO. Mm. The first one is being insecure. <laughs> and this is what all of my friends who have started young media marketing companies have at times, not all of them, actually, I'd say about 50% have failed at is they've been so insecure that the thought of someone coming in that is senior and knows more threatens their like sense of leadership yeah. and stuff. And uh, I got to admit, I had that. I had that when we started. I hired a bunch of kids, young people, because I didn't I didn't understand how I would manage someone that was 45 when I was 20. But uh, I think in our second year, I quickly got rid of that. And um, now I'm all for people that are so much better than me. I know what I'm bad at most things. And um, I try and spend as much as my, of my time as I possibly can on the things that I think I'm uniquely positioned or uniquely talented at, hmm. and uh, and that's how great companies work. It's a, by definition just a group of people, right? Company. So
0: indeed, yeah, yeah no, I com- I completely subscribe to that. Thanks so much for coming no in. Fascinating to talk to you. Um, there's a lot of sort of financial services decision makers who sort of listen to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people in fintech companies, people in sure. banks what would be the thing that you could do for them? What would they call you for? Uh,
1: if you're trying to understand how to use social media to um, earn a greater share of young people's... And when I say young people, I mean between the age of like... I mean, Not even young people, anybody that uses social media. So we could go from, you know, 16 to four, 45, 50... Um, if you're trying to earn a greater share of their lives, then I genuinely and you're not looking just to tick a box to make your CEO happy or whatever, um, and you're looking to do stuff that's uh, interesting, innovative, take a risk and maybe be a bit scared, then Social Chain is the the email for you to contact. If you're looking to just do social media because someone's told you you have to do it, then there's loads of other companies out there. But uh, <laughs> we're 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 you know we're we're here to have fun and. and keep brands at the forefront of what's possible and that's what keeps the fire in our bellies
0: so yeah fantastic well thanks very much for coming in thanks for really reminding. appreciate the time thank you for your time um, thanks for listening guys